Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast, where we talk about behavioral finance with a specific focus on how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. My guest this week is Sam Stivarajan. He is a speaker, author, and behavioral scientist with a diverse background in wealth management, investment banking, fintech, and corporate law. He's built and led three different wealth management businesses, managing over $80 billion in client assets, and has advised global clients on over $40 billion. With a doctorate in behavioral science, Sam applies research insights to help individuals and companies make better decisions in an uncertain world. He's also written two best-selling books and on investing and, and, and on the intersection of behavioral science and stoicism. Sam, welcome. John, pleasure to be here. Could we begin by having you tell people, since you're such a person who's done so many uh, amazing things, can you just sort of tell people a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis, your consulting work, your speaking work, uh what is sam how, how does sam spill his days oh that's a loaded question um huh. I think what really intrigues me john um and has been the common denominator i think throughout my professional life is i think the way people make decisions fascinates me whether it's in their personal uh capacity or in in the context of making decisions leading companies etc you know, and everything from uh, mergers and acquisitions to how you invest your portfolios to how you make decisions on your career. So having been in the corporate world, uh, leading teams and helping advisors, uh, helping investors and executives, I think, make those kinds of decisions. Right now, most of my time is focused on speaking to business audiences and university audiences on this idea of adapting to an uh, uncertain world and making better decisions. I write on it. I have a, a newsletter and I write in the Globe. Uh, I have a podcast as well, and that's speaking to advisors and subject matter experts. And I do a little bit of consulting work to uh, um, companies on the in the area of decision-making and strategic uh, advisory mandates. We have a lot in common, although I don't do any, I, I give advice to to retail investors, but I also have a podcast. I also uh, write for the Globe. I also write books. So there's a lot of things that you and I have in common. Absolutely. Could I, like be, could I ask you to maybe put a plug in for your podcast? Uh, uh, it's it's uh, called uh, The Future Ready Advisor. You put out a few episodes. You deal, you deal with uh, the industry and decision making, and you speak to a number of thought leaders. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to, John. It's uh, it's relatively new, and the, uh, the 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 premise of the podcast is really that the industry is changing, and we're seeing uh, AI come in and take a bigger uh, uh, mind share, if you will, of the market. 
And there's a lot of people wondering whether AI is going to replace uh, advice. And in my opinion, I don't think that's ever going to happen, certainly not in my lifetime. I think what it is changing is the nature of the industry. I think a lot of the things that we take uh, have been the sources of differentiation for advisors, uh, portfolio selection, asset allocation. I think those are always going to be important, but I believe that becomes table stakes at this stage. And to try to compete on the basis that I can pick a portfolio better than the next advisor is, is not a winning proposition in the, uh, in the world of the future. Uh, AI can do it uh, perhaps as well and cheap uh, and cheaper than a, a, than a human advisor can. Where I think there's an opportunity for advisors to differentiate themselves from AI and from other advisors is really the uh, understanding the human being behind the portfolio or the human being behind that insurance policy. Uh, and you do that by in incorporating a lot of the things that you're talking about, a lot of things you've been writing and advocating about, John is that behavioral uh, uh, biases, the, you know, the optimism bias, but understanding the hopes, dreams, and the preferences and experiences of that human being in a way that I don't think uh, AI is, is going to be able to do. And so the podcast has uh, uh, guests that are either advisors who have kind of incorporated that kind of thinking and philosophy uh, to prepare themselves to be future ready, as well as having subject matter experts that uh, can provide a lens or a set of tools that might help advisors preparing themselves. So everything from behavioral scientists to psychologists to uh, executive coaches to personal branding experts, et cetera, that are saying, okay, in, in a future ready world, here are some of the lenses that you might want to think about or tools that you might want to have in, in your toolbox as an advisor preparing for uh, to compete and succeed in that world. Perfect. That's a, that's it's fa it's fascinating stuff and it's a little bit beyond the purview of this podcast. So although I'd love to go a little bit further into that, I think I have to sort of stay on the the main path. And the main path that I have for you that I wanted to ask you about is your doctoral thesis. You 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 actually uh, looked into risk tolerance and risk tolerance questionnaires and the way people using the traditional table stakes world uh, of uh, here's a questionnaire, here's 20 questions, complete this, and then we'll we'll give you a fairly commoditized recommended portfolio based on the answers you give, which is perhaps different from the, uh, you know, tell me about your 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 hopes and dreams <clears throat> and your experiences you know, go, growing up and, and the more human elements that might do, do more to inform uh, the true risk tolerance and risk capacity of, of, of individual investors. Could I maybe ask you to talk a little bit about uh, the research you've done and, and what the main findings are from your perspective? Sure, I'd love to. Um, maybe I can go back. I think part of what inspired it is I've been in the industry for a number, uh, a number of years. So in, I remember in 2008 when the Great Recession occurred, uh, I was uh, running an ultra high net worth business and we had very wealthy, very sophisticated investors who would have done a risk tolerance questionnaire, who would have been you know, sophisticated and well aware that markets go up, markets go down. Yet, uh, not surprising to you, John, many of them panicked in the 2008 uh, recession and wanted to undo everything that they said that they were aware of before the, the recession had occurred. So that got me thinking, well, how valuable are these risk tolerance questionnaires and attitudes, et cetera? So I, my doctoral thesis was really focused on investor and advisor decision-making. 
um, and uh, including the, the use of risk tolerance questionnaires. And so I did a, a combined qualitative and quantitative study of high net worth advisors and investors uh, uh, across uh, uh, across the world, but with the primary focus on Canada. And what was perhaps not surprising to you and many of your listeners is I did find that risk tolerance uh, questionnaires were not at all uh, a, a predictive of how much risk an investor wanted to take. But more than that, I, I'll highlight a couple of the key findings I thought that you know, your, your uh, audience will find interesting. Number one, the biggest uh, predictor of investor risk-taking was actually their return expectations. So if they expected returns in the market to go be higher, then they wanted to allocate more of their portfolios towards equities. I think very much in line with the thesis of, of your book and your podcast, which is optimism bias. What they also found uh, is that the, um, and this is interesting, I gave more than 150 advisors a hypothetical client situation. So, was, you know, hypothetical client gave them the demographics, the financials for that client, and that the primary investment objective for that client was retirement in 10 years. Uh, I gave them also a completed risk tolerance questionnaire. The interesting finding was that the portfolio recommendations for these advisors ranged anywhere from 25% of the portfolios in, to inequities to over 75%. So even for advisors, the risk tolerance questionnaire of that client situation was not the biggest factor. It was the advisor's own return expectations that drove their recommendations for their clients. And of course, there's other factors that have come in and, you know, there's been a lot of research on it, everything from demographics, gender, um, you know, as you're aware, et cetera. But for me, I think the key things that uh, uh, came out of it is that risk tolerance questionnaires, at least the way they're being traditionally measured, did not have the predictive uh, uh, capacity that we expect it to have in the industry. And that uh, the idea of return expectations uh, drive both investor and advisor behavior. It seems to me that we're, there are applications for overconfidence, uh, for confirmation bias, uh, for um, status quo bias in terms of this is what has worked in the past. And so let's just keep on doing that on the, on the, the part of both the, uh, the investor and the advisor. And um, there's a certain amount of licensing, I think, that it's one of the things that I talk about a little bit in Bullshift is how clients will sometimes look for the advisor that will promise the highest rate of return, uh, even if those returns are not in keeping with what the professional associations would say is a reasonable expectation. Uh, it's almost like the way, the way you get business as an advisor is to tell the biggest whopper that can be believed. And if you, know, if you can get someone to believe that you can get 7% and, and they think 7% is a reasonable expectation, then you, then you can land that client. And if you say, well, actually, no, a balanced portfolio will only get you four and a half or five, which is perhaps a more reasonable expectation, that's, uh, you're, you're being punished for, for being decent and, and for being rigorous because you're setting reasonable expectations. And the ones who set unreasonably optimistic expectations are the ones who land the clients. And, and that's a real problem because now, uh, and that's especially a problem if, when we have a major drawdown, 
it's not a problem when markets are going up. Everyone's got a risk tolerance that they can handle when markets are going up. It's, it's the downside that uh, we have to uh, think about. Did you do any research with regard to loss aversion and prospect theory in terms of uh, the, the research done by Kahneman and Tversky and, and how the pain of a loss is twice as severe as the joy of a gain? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, Kahneman and Tversky's uh, uh, theory, I think, is uh, was the progenitor of the whole behavioral finance and science movement. My uh, my research, I mean, looked at it, but uh, not in any specific detail and no, <clears throat> excuse me, no conclusions that, uh, you know, <laughs> that they measure up to what I think Kahneman and Tversky found. I think, look, I think the the loss aversion concept, I think, is uh, is critical. I think that the, the, the pain of loss is felt twice as much as the pleasure of a gain. Um, and I think that coexists to some extent with this, still this propensity to have optimism in, in the world. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. And I think your commentary about the, uh, you know, there's almost rent-seeking behavior on the part of investors to say, hey, I want to go to the person that can promise me the best, even uh, if it's not realistic. I think that is a very real feature uh, or bug of uh, of the industry at this stage. And maybe I'd make two comments on that. Uh, I, I draw a parallel or an analogy in, in fitness circles, uh, and we see it as we're coming into January and the new year, there's going to be new diets, new, uh, you know, new gadgets, et cetera. But in fitness circles, the key observation really, and it's the level of realism that you're bringing into the, the financial world, is that in fitness, no amount of exercise can offset a poor diet. And I would say similarly in personal finance matters, no amount of investing heroics, no matter what an advisor is promising you, can offset poor spending and savings habits. And I think, unfortunately, there are enough uh, clients or investors out there that you know want the the magic bullet that a, a, a portfolio is going to give them a lifestyle that their you know savings and spending uh, of a lifestyle isn't giving them. Um, and I think the and part of it is I think there is there is a historical inf uh, data that I think that is being uh, relied on. So there was a, a real uh, interesting study with McKinsey in 2016 that said that the, it, the returns of the last 30 years between 1985 and 2014 were uh, around 7.9% in the U.S., real returns okay, after inflation. And that was impressive. And what people aren't uh, taking into account is that is about 1.5% higher than the 100-year average. And the question then we have to ask ourselves is, is this is this uh, above normal or is this the new normal or are we going to regress to the mean etc and McKinsey's argument is that this is above normal and the the, and the reason it was above normal is that we had a whole bunch of uh, a perfect storm factors that created conditions that aren't going to be replicated in the future factors like we came from a high interest rate, high inflation environment in the 70s and 80s that, you know, brought down, uh, that came down rapidly that we're not going to go back to. Uh, we had a level of GDP growth and economic liberalization in countries like China and India that opened up vast, you know, that's 2.5 billion people that have suddenly become middle class, uh, starting to go into the middle class uh, uh, spending habits, et cetera. 
there is no way that we can expect another China or India opening up. That's a once in a lifetime type of event. So, and corporate taxes went down to, you know, historically low levels, et cetera. Like, if we don't believe those kind of economic, macroeconomic factors are going to be repeated in the next 20, 30 years, and I think most of us would agree that it wouldn't, then where do we get that uh, the idea that we think that the return expectations that, you know, uh, accompany those macroeconomic factors are going to come from? And I think this is where your point about the optimism bias is, is a thesis that I share. I think that, uh, it, you know, and again, I, I think you're not saying that being optimism, that the alternative is to be pessimistic. It's to be realistic and right. saying, OK, exactly. that, you know, like, what is it that we can really expect? There's still a lot of arguments and I can go into it. There's still a lot of arguments as to why I would think that for most investors and clients, having a significant equity allocation, you know, for a good chunk of their lives still makes sense. Uh, but you can still have that view without thinking that we're going to have, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12% returns in the foreseeable future. Yeah, we, so I think we completely agree. And by the way, I've seen studies like the McKinsey study you've uh, mentioned as well. Other factors include uh, women entering the workforce on uh, mass for a half century. And now that is pretty much uh, plateaued and, and there's no more no, there are no more games to be to be had there and then there are of course uh, new uh new headwinds things like uh, dealing with climate change and money has to be diverted to deal with that and there will be costs in terms of lost productivity and insurance claims and and lost farmland and 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 people that are being dislocated as a result of their home being underwater and all manner of things like that as well so there, there are just a lot of things that were perhaps uh fortuitous and favorable in the past that are not going to be as fortuitous and as favorable going forward. And unfortunately, a lot of people are anchored on their reality of their of their entire life experience uh, without realizing that their life experience was anomalously positive and in that it's not likely to be uh, replicated for the remainder of their life. That then brings me to some of the consulting work you do. I, I know that a lot of what you do, Sam, deals with decision making. And I'm wondering if you could perhaps share with us a little bit about how we can make decisions in light of the fact of the world having changed and the fact that how do we temper expectations? Because a lot of people, they say, well, that's 7.9% real, that, that has been my life experience for my entire life. That's been my experience. Why shouldn't I continue to expect that to be the case going forward? How would you advise people to think about their circumstance and to make decisions in light of the fact that things are highly unlikely to be as favorable going forward as they have been. So my work in decision-making, I mean, it, it continues to evolve, but my second book, which I wrote in the pandemic uh, was called Uphill. And it was uh, really driven by my discovery, uh, fortuitous discovery, if you will, of, of, of enjoyed reading uh, Stoic philosophy from 2000 years ago. And I saw parallels between Stoicism uh, from 2000 years ago and behavioral finance and science from today. And so a lot of the, uh, the, the decision-making framework that I think helped get solidified, I mean, I did it through practice in, in my various professional career, but in writing that book, a framework kind of solidified, and it really is, it's, it's threefold. It's like assess the situation objectively, 
and there are tools to do that. So like, it's not subjectively, it's not due to bias or emotion. And I'll talk on, on, on one element of that. The second element is act. So create an action plan that is well thought out. And what I mean by well thought out is anticipate the you know potential pitfalls or obstacles, et cetera, because the best laid plans, as Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the nose, you know? And I think that, you know, whatever your investment strategy is going to be, there are going to be unexpected. We had that in 2020 with the pandemic that nobody expected. You know, we've had this in 2022, 2023 with the two regional wars that uh, nobody really expected. Um, and the, the last element of the framework is adapt. And the and I think in an un, you know uncertain world in an increasingly uh, interconnected, a complex world, I think that the ability to be adapt and be resilient is also critical. And there are tools to do that. So I'll give you an example of the assess. You know, a tool for the assess. There's the inside versus outside view. And uh, Michael Mabusin has written some great books on this, had a really great example. So he talked about an analyst who uh, said that a particular stock is going to grow at 25% a year for the next 10 years, uh, uh, for the next 10 years. And this analyst, you know, financial models prove that. I mean, there were very reasonable models and they were very uh, well thought out and, uh, you know, all the scenarios looked good. And this is what Mabusin would call an inside view. But Mabusin asked the analyst a question, which is the outside view. He said, how many other companies had similar rates of return for similar time periods? A very reasonable question. The answer is none. So should that give you a better assessment of the current situation of this stock? Like knowing the analyst model and knowing Mabusin's question, answer to Mabusin's question, does that affect an investor's decision whether they're going to invest in that stock or not? I think it should. And I think to your point about, you know, how do you deal with an investor who sits there and say, hey, I've had 17 or 18, you know, percent return or whatever it is that they've had over the last X number of years, why should I expect any different? I think the question is, you know, we have to look at uh, history and say, okay, you know, what what other period of time is it that we think that, you know, it has this unprecedented uh, um, return, uh, a period of bull, bull market returns? You went through, I think there were some great uh, additions that you added to, like why we've got over the last 30 years on the McKinsey Report, why these were tailwinds. You've highlighted some of the great headwinds, et cetera, that we're going to get, you know? And so I think those are the things I would encourage investors to think about. Like we had, uh, you know, and it, it, we have had very recent experience. 2023 was the, and 2022 was the period of, you know, high inflation. Did we not think throughout the 90s and the 2000s that inflation, we've slain the inflation beast? You know, and uh, because that was the 1970s and 1980s kind of phenomena, this doesn't exist anymore. And what we've just showed is that uh, history, stock market, politics, geopolitics, I think it moves in cycles. You know, to me, the best quote on this is Mark Twain's that said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think for us to sit there and think that, you know, like, okay, we're not going to go back to a situation where we're going to have lower than average returns is i think is, is dangerous for investor or advisor so i agree with the danger i'm i'm still struggling with 
the decision-making part. If, if you're an advisor and you're trying to uh, instill a, a, uh, an element of realism to the mm -hmm. client that's sitting across the table uh, from you, and the client honestly believes that a 7.9% real mm -hmm. return is reasonable, Mm -hmm. How do you disabuse that client of that belief, which is based on real world lived experience? And the client will say, well, but that's what I've been experiencing for the past 30 or 35 years. And I'm now ready to retire. And uh, uh, or, or, or let's say this way. What if what if the person is only 35 years old and says, my daddy tells me that I should expect this kind of a return. And uh, and I want to retire, you know, at age 62 with two point mm -hmm. two million dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I can do that by setting aside only $18,000 a year. And and then you say, well, maybe $18,000 a year would get you there if you could earn 7.9 real. But if you're only earning 3.9 real, uh, you ain't going to do it. And uh, I think 3.9 real is a more reasonable assumption for expectation for a, for a balanced portfolio over the rest of your uh, working life. How do you actually get that client to say, oh, geez, uh, I have to lower my expectations for returns and consequently, and this is the really hard part, save a lot more than $18,000 a year if, in fact, I want to get to that $2.2 when I'm 62? Look, I think it's a great question. I think that there's as much art as science in that. Uh, I can tell you how we were how I used to do it at the teams that I led um, in, in my wealth management days. I think, you know, part of it is that we would use studies, you know, independent studies like the McKinsey one that I talked about. I, I think we would explain why uh, these kind of return expectations were uh, anomalous that we've had in the past. But the most important thing I, I think I would always uh, explain to clients, and for the most of them it worked, is I said, look, we, the, the idea for us in planning, a, in, in, in putting a portfolio together is to plan for the worst and hope for the best. I think like, you know, if you are right, and that returns are gonna be 7.9% a year, you're going to have 4 million or 5 million, et cetera. If you're wrong, Part about decision making is being probabilistic and scenario based as opposed to kind of thinking, you know, 100 percent this is going to happen because nobody has a crystal ball. I don't care who it is. They don't have it. But I think that, you know, to sit there to, and emphasize to the client that, OK, if, what happens if you're wrong? What happens, you know, if you're everything that we were because, you know, you're not the world isn't unfolding the way that it has for the last 30 years. I mean, like, you know, your climate change is a great example. You know, like, I mean, those are things that in the last 30 years we didn't really deal with. We don't know what is going to happen in the next 30 years. We don't know the level of damage that's going to occur. We don't understand the level of kind of uh, limits on economic growth that is going to that's going to cause uh, our taxes or anything else that we've got. On that basis, you know, are you feeling that comfortable that you're basically willing to, you know, bet it all on black and write it, et cetera? And if you're not, okay, and I would caution you as, a, as, as your advisor that you shouldn't, let's plan a scenario where it doesn't grow that as fast and let's see what we need to make uh, as those, uh, you, know, you know, how we would approach your portfolio on that basis. And, and ultimately, I would say, John, I think that the, what I've seen in my experience with a lot of clients is I think that they're being uh, led to believe that they need a certain amount of money 
uh, you know, the 2 million or 3 million or 4 million or whatever it happens to be uh, without any real uh, uh, work or analysis done to kind of get to that number, et cetera. And we used to do that work. We used to sit there and create goals-based portfolio to say, okay, you know, how much do you need for your retirement? How much do you need for your kid's education? What's a nice to have goal? What's a must have goal? And then when we went through that exercise, I think it not only helped clients kind of visualize what they probably really needed, but also what type of return that they would actually need to get in order to, to get to the level. I had a client um, in, what was it, 2007, had sold a company, um, had pocketed $40 million and came to me and said that he needs 15% return a year. And this was 2007, where I think, you know, we probably had that. And, you know, my first question to the client is, why? And he's like, well, what do you mean, why? And I said, look, uh, let's use John as his name. I said, John, okay, if we can get you 15% return a year, that means in seven years, like you're over $100 million. Let's leave aside taxes and everything else for simplicity. I said, what are you going to do with $100 million? Because what are you going to spend it on? And when we asked that question, he stopped and he says, look, I have a very simple lifestyle. I grew up pretty poor. This is a lot more money than I ever needed. He says, I, I probably need three hundred or $400,000 a year. And I said, well, you could put that in a bank account and, uh, you know, and get that return, et cetera. I know I'm talking myself out of a, uh, out of a client, but like I said, what do you need it for? And then he actually realized that he doesn't need that kind of return anymore. Like he wanted to provide for his kids and grandkids, et cetera. So he wanted a long-term horizon. And we said, okay, like 5% or 6% return. And this is 2007 is not, uh, you know, he doesn't need any more than that. And so when he uh, came to that realization, he was comfortable. And by the way, we had 2008 after that. And then he came back and said, yeah, you know, like, thank you. Right. So I, I think having, I think there is there is no easy answer. I think there is it's what you do with your clients. It's walking through them. It's being able to kind of demonstrate that hey, here's the reason why I don't think the seven point nine is realistic. Uh, I'm not stopping you from getting seven point nine. Like the way that we're investing, if the market returns seven point nine, your portfolio is also going to get seven point nine or, or better, et cetera. But what we're doing is providing a level of prudence in your planning and portfolio so that, you know, you're ready. It's an all weather portfolio. If the world doesn't turn out the way that you're expecting it, you're still going to be able to do the things that you want to do in life. Yeah, I should point out to the people listening that that story that you just told about John uh, is in your is on your blog, on your newsletter. Uh, and so you should, you know, people should check it out if they want to learn a little bit more about what you do and, and your thoughts. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Let's uh, let's see if we can wrap this up because we're getting short on time. So I always like to end with uh, two things. And the first is that's bullshit. If it's up to Sam, what would you say is something that the industry is 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 not getting right in, in late 2023? Well, I'm hoping I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I think you're you and I are in agreement on this. Look, I believe uh, you know, this is heresy, but I believe there's too much of a focus on technical skills in the industry. And by that, I mean like on risk, return, sharp ratios, portfolio selection, asset allocation. And before anybody kind of you know jumps down my throat, I'm not arguing that those things are important. They are important, but I think in 2023, there are table stakes that you bring you know, to, the, to, to, the, to, to, to your clients. And if not already, AI, I think is gonna soon be able to do most of that you know, better, cheaper and faster than a human advisor can. 
but I think good advice is way, and we've talked some about some of that, is way more than technical skills. It requires trust. It requires really understanding the client. It's a good bedside manner. It's a good discovery process. It's a training in skillfully interviewing clients. I, I don't think there's enough emphasis on all of these other soft skills that uh, I think that is going to be necessary for the advisor of the future. Well, you're right. We agree. So then that brings me to my final question, which is uh, shift happens. If it's up to you, how would you improve the delivery of soft skills in the human element of financial advice going forward? So I think this is one of my findings and recommendations from my doctoral thesis. I think the one of the interesting things that may be relevant for your uh, audience is that, you know, I interviewed a whole bunch of high net worth advisors and almost all of them agreed that a good discovery process, they understood the need for it, they valued it, and their uh, un almost unanimous commentary was that they felt that too many advisors did it tick the box version of their uh, of their KYC and uh, understanding of the client. So my recommendation, what I think we should happen is there should be more training, you know, whether it's at school, whether it's through the industry licensing programs, I think the CFA start, society is starting to do some good work here. But I think, you know, if you think about it, psychiatrists, coaches, police interrogators are all taught how to ask questions, good questions, how to probe deeper. Financial advisors are not, you know, and I think if we want to do uh, the right service for our clients and to, you know, I think this is a very noble profession. And I think that to do it justice and to give it the, the status that it deserves, I think that we should be, you know, emphasizing more training on the soft skills, including interviewing uh, and the better discovery. Perfect. That's wonderful. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So thank you so much, Sam. That's a wonderful way to end. I'm so glad that you could join me today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure to be on the podcast, John. I'm a big fan of your work and uh, the message that you're giving to your clients and your audience. So thank you. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.